The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. Well, please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. Turn to the Epistle of the Ephesians. Epistle to the Ephesians. And we'll read the first two verses, which will be our text for this evening. You'll find that on page 976 of the Pew Bible. This is the Word of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we ask now that by the power of the Spirit, we will indeed know that grace and peace, and we will live out of it even as we leave this place. May our fellowship in your word now be sweet. Declare the excellencies of you, our triune God, and give us ears to hear, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, perhaps you're like me sometimes when you come in your own private reading to read the introduction uh, to most of Paul's epistles, such as the one we've just read now, the first two verses, you tend just to skip over them because you've read them a million times and you've heard them over and over again. And we tend to think it's just another introduction to a letter. To do that, we'd be terribly wrong, of course. These are the words of sacred scripture. And not just that, they contain profound truths concerning the Christian. And I would venture to say that in these first two verses of the epistle, there is, if you like, a summary of the major themes that we find in the epistle to the Ephesians. If I can put it this way, the dividing wall between Jew, Paul, and Gentile, the Ephesians, has been torn down through the grace and mercy of the triune God in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's a way of restating, as it were, not just the first two verses, but the whole epistle itself. Tonight, we commence our study of the letter to the Ephesians. We're seeking to plumb the depths, the depths of God's goodness and grace to us. And thus, we hope to enjoy our relationship with Father, Son, and Spirit in a deeper way than perhaps we have before. There's payoff to good doctrine. And we're going to see that in three ways tonight as we consider these first two verses. I want to talk firstly about the background to this letter. Then we'll look at the people of the letter. And then we'll look at the blessing of the letter. The background, the people, and the blessing. And in terms of background to this letter, I want to be really very brief. We know where this letter is heading or at least we think we know, it's to the church at Ephesus. There's actually some doubt about that. The earliest manuscripts don't have the words in Ephesus in them, but it's widely received that a church or a number of churches in Ephesus 
uh, were the uh, destination of this letter. Where is Ephesus? If you imagine uh, modern-day Turkey, Asia Minor, uh, it's on the western side of Turkey. Ephesus was one of the top five most important cities in the Roman Empire. It was strategically important for the spread of the gospel. And we know that the letter, and we'll come to this in a moment, we know the letter was written between the years 60 and 62 AD. 30 years after the death of our Lord, more or less, we find that the word has gone out through various missionary journeys. The word has gone out. It's been preached to Jew and to Gentile alike. It's reached Ephesus through Paul's missionary journeys. And now he's writing a follow-up letter to those people that he has already preached the gospel to. What's going on in the world of Ephesus at 60 to 62 AD? It's the days of the Roman Empire. It's the days of Nero as emperor, and we know what that means. Nero is a name of infamy, an emperor that hated the Christians and persecuted the Christians. As I've said, we know the epistle was written round about 60 to 62 AD because of the internal evidence of the text itself. We know that Paul was under, placed under house arrest, Acts 28, and Paul tells us that he is presently under arrest while he's writing this epistle. Chapter 3, verse 1, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, Again, chapter 6 and verse 20, he says, for which I am an ambassador in chains. Paul is under house arrest at the time of writing. He has appealed to Caesar and he waits that appeal to be heard under house arrest. In other words, while Paul is imprisoned, at least in his own home, we see in the text he is still preaching the gospel He's asking them to pray for boldness that he might have in preaching the gospel. And he's writing to them of the glories of a triune and gracious salvation that has brought Jew and Greek together in Christ Jesus, all while he's under arrest all while he's being persecuted. Paul is thus to us then a teacher and a model, a teacher and an example. Friends, when we find ourselves in times of hardship, oppression, persecution, at times of sore distress, maybe through illness, that's not the time for us to slack off spiritually. It's to do what Paul did. It's to double down, to think greatly on the glories of the salvation of which Paul is going to speak to us in this letter. That's roughly what's going on uh, in the time of Paul writing this letter. We'll see more of that as we work our way through the epistle. Let's ask ourselves about the people of the epistle. Well, very clearly, we can see in verse 1, it's Paul. Paul is the author. And he's writing to the Ephesians. Consider Paul. He's worth spending some time on. We know much about his background. His birth name was Saul. That's his Jewish name. Now, don't make the mistake of thinking that when he was converted, he changed his name to Paul to reflect his new spiritual status. That's not true, by the way. Saul's his Hebrew name. Paul's his Greek name. That's all the significance there is. 
We know Saul was born in Tarsus, which is also Turkey, in Turkey, but he is also born a Roman citizen, which is why he finds himself under house arrest, having made appeal to hear his case before Caesar himself. Elsewhere in Scripture, we know that Paul was educated by Gamaliel, one of the most celebrated rabbis of Judaism. And thus Paul himself would write, concerning himself, find this in Philippians 3.6, that we read this of him, he was circumcised the eighth day of the stock of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, concerning the law, a Pharisee. And that says everything to us, doesn't it? We understand now why, that when the Christ came and the early church was growing, he was an enemy to the church as he was an enemy of Christ. And yet this Paul was converted, converted by Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. And there was a special calling put upon his life by God. God spoke to Ananias these words, Go, for Paul is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. And here is Paul, even as he's writing these things, bearing witness before kings. We would have to say, as we read Paul's letters, we're confronted with the reality that the experiential nature of his conversion never left him. The reality of his own conversion to Christ never departed from him. It never became a common thing. And as we read Paul's epistles, we see this manifest for us in many different ways. Consider 1 Timothy 1 and verse 15. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came in the, into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the foremost. That's what I mean by Paul giving us insight into his life, insight into his conversion, insight to what he thought of himself. Or we could turn to Ephesians chapter 3, verse 8. He says, To me, Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given me to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Or we could think of Romans chapter 7 and verse 24. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. We hear in Paul's epistles what he thought of himself. And what he thought of himself, even as a product of the grace of God. I think it was Sinclair Ferguson who said something along the lines that Paul's letters were not only covered in ink, but his own tears. So real was his former life, as it were, and so real was his life under grace, his salvation never became a common thing to him. I wonder if that's true of us as well. Has your salvation, your status of being in Christ, has that become a common thing to you? Are you like Paul that when he writes, you're taken to the depths of your sin 
by the Spirit of God, but then raised up to the highest heaven in glory by that same Spirit. So undeserved for Paul was salvation. So undeserved is it for us, friends, that as we read of these things, here in your homes, alone and with your families, our hearts ought to be filled with wonder and love and praise to God that he has done such a magnificent thing for us. Perhaps after his conversion, the greatest surprise of Paul's life was his office. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus. One sent apostle, one sent by Christ Jesus. Listen again to chapter 3, verses 7 to 10. Paul writes this, Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power to me. Though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, saved and sent, sent to reveal the mysteries of Christ. Paul says he's an apostle by the grace of Christ. Uh, Chapter 1, verse 1, by the will of God. This is not something he took to himself. How could it be? He was at war with Christ. He was persecuting the church. He didn't take this position to himself. And it's interesting what else Paul will say in the epistle to the Ephesians about his office. The Spirit, rather, through Paul, would say this of his office. Chapter 4, verse 11. And Christ gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. He's going to say this. The Spirit also, through Paul, chapter 2, verse 19 So then we are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. You see what Paul's doing? In summary form, an apostle of Christ Jesus, he's laying out the authority and office and purpose and function of his apostleship. He's saying, I did not take this to myself. It was given to me, yes, by Christ himself. And he says he takes his lead from the chief cornerstone, Jesus Christ. That what he does and who he is and his apostleship and office is founded upon the gift, the donation of the risen Christ to his church. Christ gave the apostles, Christ spoke through them, Christ rules through them, as he does with all those other gifts. Church history tells us that Paul's apostleship also cost him his life, as it did for a number of other apostles. In other words, Paul is emphasizing the gracious 
and yet divine calling placed upon his life by Christ according to the will of God, a calling not to be disputed or derided, as some in the church sought to do. His letter to the Ephesians came to them with the very authority of Christ, friends as it comes to us with the same authority. And yet we can say also, can we not, his letter came to the Ephesians and also to us with all of the human sympathy, all of the human empathy that someone who had lived Paul's life, a wretched, hell-deserving sinner, made an apostle of Christ, could bring to us. And above that, we can say what wonder is this, that God himself would convey his mind and his heart to us here this night through the apostle. But there's another group of people also here. It's the Ephesians. Notice how they're described to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. To the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Who are these saints? They're men, women, husbands, wives, children, servants. Just read chapter 5. All those people are in chapter 5. The whole church, real people, saved by Christ, brought into covenant, and thus made holy by God, saints, sanctified, made holy by God. Saints who in their life were faithful in Christ Jesus. Matthew Henry has two things to say on this. He says, believers in Christ and firm and constant in their adherence to him and to his truths and ways. He continues, it's an, it is the honor of Christians to have obtained mercy of the Lord to be faithful. It is the honor of Christians to have obtained mercy of the Lord to be faithful. And wherein do we find these Christians? What is the sphere of their existence according to the introduction? In Christ. In Christ Jesus. I think I'm right in saying that's the first of 12 occasions in this epistle alone, that Paul will speak of people being in Christ. This is known as the epistle of unity. It could also be known as the epistle of union, union with Christ, being in Christ. Friends, this is going to be a repeated emphasis for us in the coming weeks and months ahead, the, the, the gospel truth of union with Christ. That when we come to faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the believer and our Lord himself are so bound together that they can never be separated. We are his. He is ours. We are in him. Yes, he dwells in our hearts. Ephesians 3. Christ in us, the hope of glory. We in him. And who are these Ephesians who are in Christ? Well, they're certainly Gentiles. Paul's going to speak about that in, in chapter 3 and chapter 4. 
The dividing wall of separation between Jew and Gentile has been broken down in Christ, that we are members of the household of God together. Paul had already preached to these people in his third missionary journey, and he's writing now to them, it seems again, to encourage them in their faith. Because the deepest possible bonds that exist in this world are found here in these words, faithful in Christ Jesus. An unbreakable bond for now and eternity. This in Jesus bond will last when every other bond shall be severed. But the bond between Christ and his people shall never end. Paul and the Ephesians are one, even as Christ and Paul are one. And that speaks to us thirdly, really, of the blessings of the letter. I've said the blessings of this introduction, the in Christness of the epistle, and what we find now in verse 2 are really a summary of the entire blessings in the epistle. But before we come to the blessings themselves, we must ask, from whom do these blessings come? Well, the short answer would be our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That is to say, the Christian, uh, Paul to the Ephesians, Paul to us, and us as Christians in our daily lives, are recipients of a divine gift, a supernatural gift, a gift that is not possible to receive or generate by the powers of this world. Dear friends, when you are blessed at the opening of worship, and you'll notice I use this blessing, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And when you are blessed at the end of worship in the benediction, God is actually blessing you. It's not just a nice way to start and close our meetings. God is literally blessing you. What wonder is this? that heaven should be opened with these divine words and these divine concepts, grace and peace, and you and me should be recipients of them in this very moment. Staggering. We are literally blessed by God now and as Christians all the days of our lives. There is a divine grant from Father and Son, worked in us by the Holy Spirit. In other words, this blessing of grace and peace is a triune work. You might be saying, well, I don't see the Holy Spirit anywhere in there. It's just God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, let's delve briefly into some Trinitarian theology just for a moment. While Father and Son are spoken here, When God acts towards us in salvation, the Spirit is always present and always active as well. When God acts towards man, we can think of creation, 
He's not acting in himself. He's acting towards outside himself, as it were. In creation or redemption, it is always the triune God acting together. And theologians have a fancy term for this. It's Latin. It's opera ad extra. The external operations or the external workings of the Trinity. And they add to that another Latin phrase, opera ad extra indivisa sunt. The external works of the Trinity are indivisible. The external works of the Trinity, as God relates to you, it is always Father, Son, and Holy Spirit working them. So take the incarnation. You might think, oh, well, only Jesus was incarnated, and you'd be right, of course. But was not Christ incarnated in order to fulfill the will of the Father? And was he not incarnated by the power of the Holy Spirit, by whom he was conceived in the womb of the Virgin Mary? Yes, Father, Son, and Spirit are active in the incarnation. Redemption is the same. The Father designs the work of redemption. We think of election. The Son accomplishes the work of redemption by incarnation, life, death, and resurrection. And the Spirit applies that work. Redemption is a triune work. Grace and peace can never just come from Father and Son. They come to us from Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Though he is here, the silent party, the very work of applying grace and peace in your life, dear Christian, is the work of the Holy Spirit. Friends, I want to say this. It suits each one of us here tonight to have a robust Trinitarian theology a robust Trinitarian theology for lack of knowledge regarding one person of the Trinity, their person or their work, can severely hamper and curtail our enjoyment of God. If we don't understand who God is, then how can we love him for what he is? How can we appreciate the way he works? If you spend time with most contemporary Christians today, you'll find out that they operate with a defunct Trinitarian theology, or at least a deficient one. I've said this before, the average Christian on the street operates with a Christology, and pretty much that's where it ends. They know a Father exists, and they know the Spirit exists, but if you talk to them, it's Jesus this and Jesus that, which is great as far as it goes, but it doesn't go far enough. We also see some others in the church prioritizing the work of the Spirit. We think of the charismatic movement, where there's little of the Father and of the Son and much of the Spirit. It's very important for you, friends. A practical payoff to you when it comes to grace and peace being yours, that is the product of the divine will and of a divine working. And in that grace and peace, and we'll make this clear in, especially in verses 3 to 14, which we're going to deal with in the next three weeks, that the Father has a particular role in grace and peace. And the Son has a particular role in grace and peace. And the Spirit has a particular role in grace and in peace. If we understand who they come from and how they come to us, 
will we not enjoy that grace and peace all the more? I mean, that's how the rest of Scripture works. If we understand God more, we'll never understand him comprehensively, but understanding the Trinitarian nature of this blessing upon us, will we not bless the Lord more for his goodness to us? See, friends, here we observe two of the most precious blessings of the Christian life. Grace and peace come from the very hand of God himself unto you, dear Christian. Grace and peace, a divine blessing upon your life, now and forever, and it's received by faith in the Savior. What is grace? What is grace? Common definition, it's God's unmerited favor. It's his generous kindness that he shows to us throughout salvation impacting our lives, and he shows it to us without anything that we have done to earn it. Unmerited favor. Favor is a really kind of tame word, isn't it? (laughs) When we think about the grace of God. It's God looking upon us and doing well for us, thinking well of us. Grace, you see, in this epistle is shorthand for all the blessings of salvation, certainly the blessings of salvation that Paul describes in verses 3 to 14. We read this in Ephesians, we have redemption through Christ's blood according to the riches of his grace. For by grace you have been saved, we read. There is a stewardship of God's grace given to Paul for us. Again, grace has been given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Twelve times Paul will speak of grace being something that God has blessed his people with. Calvin writes, nothing is more desirable than to have God propitious to us. And this is signified by grace. The very foundation then of our joy is the favor of God by which we enjoy true and solid prosperity and by which also our salvation is promoted even when we are in adversities. Grace belongs to us in times of blessing and in times of trouble. There is, in fact, no situation that you may face in life if you are a Christian where the grace of God will ever run out for you. My grace is sufficient for you. I think we need to hear that again. There is no circumstance in life that you will face as a Christian where the grace of God will run out. God doesn't turn his favor on like a tap and off. It's always running, and it never runs out. Times of hardship or times of blessing, it's all of grace. How can it be? Well, if we deserve hell, and we do, by the way, if we deserve hell, then anything less than hell is by the grace of God, is it not? It's better than hell. That's grace. God's favor. 
Hey, Christian, I want to say this to you. God is for you. And if God is for you, who can be against you? And this is so important to our lives. Sinclair Ferguson writes, we must learn to interpret our lives in terms of what God says about us. We must learn to interpret our lives in terms of what God says about us. What has he said about us? He has said so far we are in Christ, never to be separated from him. That he bestows upon us grace and grace and giveth more grace. And he says, my grace is sufficient for you. It's enough. It'll do you, whatever circumstance you find yourself in. He's saying, my favor is upon you. It will carry you through. If you're a true, sincere Christian, whatever your trial may be, the favor of God will carry you through it. And he won't fail. You see, it's not what you think of yourselves. It's not what you think of yourselves. It's not how you consider yourself to be one day up and down the next. We must learn to interpret our lives in terms of what God says about us. And he says we're children of grace. And with that grace naturally comes the blessing of peace. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Think on this. If God is for you, that means the sin problem between you and God has been dealt with, removed. If God has reconciled himself to you, dear Christian, if God has clothed you in righteousness, and if God assures you of his goodness daily through his grace, why then will you not have peace? If God has removed every obstacle to peace between you and him and peace on this earth, in your experience, why will we not have peace? I know it's easier said than done. <laughs> of course it is. Having peace in the moment. But the point is, Paul is teaching us, no, the Spirit is teaching us, God has given us every reason to have peace. Peace with each other. Because our sins have been forgiven. Peace with God, because hell has been subdued. This is really an anchoring truth for us. You don't need to look to yourselves for assurance. We change with the weather. We're up one moment, we're down the next. Perish the thought that we should have to look to ourselves for the assurance of God's favor. Like Caleb, our faith is in God and his promise to us. And there is a great promise here, friends. The promise of a blessing from Almighty God. You see, friends, if God has given us his son, he has established peace between us and him. That means, friends, no condemnation now I dread. Jesus and all in him 
is mine. No more condemnation. Sins past, sins present, sins future. No more condemnation for those who are in Christ. No more permanent estrangement. We can be estranged from God for a time by our own sin, but no permanent estrangement, no threat from God. Paul writes elsewhere, Christ has redeemed us from the curse of the law, having become a curse for us. That's peace for the Christian. He was cursed, not you. And not some worldly idea of peace, but a real, genuine, lasting peace based on the finished work of our Lord and our Savior, Jesus Christ. Friends, three matters of application to close. In the coming weeks, friends, every day, Pastor Rockin and I, as we preach through this, will encourage you, meditate deeply. Meditate daily upon the blessings of salvation that are yours. Go forth this very night, this week, knowing that God is bestowing upon you grace and peace. Friends, that should change you. Meditate deeply upon the blessings of God. The second point of application, having done that, then jump straight to Ephesians 4. We're not going to get there for a while, but you can do it. Go to Ephesians 4 through 6 and read what kind of conduct God requires of you on the basis of this blessing he's poured out in your life. Humility, unity, caring for each other, bearing each other's burdens, walking in love, putting on the whole armor of God that we might bring glory to our Father who is in heaven. When we go home tonight, don't let Satan steal the word out of your heart. Think richly upon the goodness and the grace of God and let it shape your life. And the third thing to do is this, very simple. Hear this blessing once again. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray. You are good indeed, Lord God. We bless you. We magnify you. There is no God like you. We thank you for your mercies. We thank you for your kindness. Lord, please, we pray, imprint upon our hearts these glorious and wonderful truths that we, Lord God, might know you, Father, Son, and Spirit, and delight in the blessings that are ours in our Savior. Bind our hearts together in love and grant us grace and peace, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.